first, a word from our sponsor, Film Movement Plus, a streaming service for fans of independent and foreign film, delivers a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best movies from prestigious festivals around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are acclaimed films you won't find anywhere else, plus newly restored classics and award-winning shorts with new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But Watch With Jen listeners can get a 14-day free trial, plus 30% off their annual subscription using the promo code GEN30. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Washington City paper film critic Noah Gattel back to the podcast for the first time since he joined me for an epic discussion last May on 90s duality in the film Zero Effect and Fight Club, a reporter at BBC Talk Movies and a guest lecturer at Smithsonian Associates. Noah is also a freelance contributor at such notable outlets as The Atlantic, The Ringer, The Guardian, Polygon, and The Economist. Noah, it is so good to have you here again. I really loved chatting with you last year and have been really looking forward to this since we came up with our irresistible themes. So how are you doing and how's 2022 treating you so far? 2022 has been good. You know, the first few months of the year are like uh, Oscar time. So I've been knee deep in all of that um but this is a nice break steve martin unfortunately is not connected to the oscars this year i know there was a chance he was going to be but this will be a a diversion instead okay glad to hear it yeah i'm looking forward to it what have you been working on lately it sounds like oscar stuff are there any recent or future pieces you would like to give us a sneak preview of sure Uh, i do an annual talk for smithsonian associates on the Oscars. It used to be in person. Maybe it will be again, but this for the third year in a row will be virtual. Okay. And it's really fun to put together because I try to give some different material every year, but basically it's sort of like a history of the Oscars, how they came to be, uh, when changes were made to the Oscars and the Academy and why those changes were made. And that sort of brings us to the present and the changes that are happening today. And then the last 20 minutes is like a deep dive predictions section. And it's really a lot of fun. People seem to like it. And and if folks want to, if they want to sign up, I think tickets are about 20 bucks. They can go to my Twitter feed because I'll have it. I'll have it pinned at the top there for everyone. Okay. Good. And I will link to that in the post when this goes up. So people can find all of the information there, but when it, came time to think of the idea for a follow-up episode. There's a million different directions we could have gone in today, but I think we chose the perfect thing. Steve Martin, our favorite wild and crazy guy, that mental level genius, comedian, banjo player, magician on a rock star level, an actor, writer, director, producer, musician. He really is a little of everything. The guy wears a million hats. We opted to focus primarily on a quartet of his mid to late 80s comedies today, although I'm sure we'll be referencing everything else. But before we delve deeper into the films you chose of Three Amigos, Little Shop of Horrors, both of which came out in December of 86, as well as 1987's Roxanne and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which was released the following year. I think we should talk about the man himself. So Noah, what do you think it is about Steve Martin that makes him such a tremendous and universally adored force to be reckoned with? I think universal is the key word there. Because, well, I'll just tell you that my first memory of loving movies was these movies that we're talking about today. And I was six when Three Amigos and Little Shop came out. I don't think I saw them yet, but I saw them the next couple of years. And I remember vividly watching them with my grandmother and both of us laughing in the exact same places. Mm -hmm. And I think there is something 
uh, about his comedy that is really uh, has cross generational appeal, even then and now. Maybe part of it's because he throws so many different comedic approaches, you know, into yes. into his films. Or maybe it's um, because he seems like such a nice, likable guy. Um, or maybe it's the hair, because there's something timeless about this young guy mm-hmm. with white white hair that uh, maybe both my grandmother and I could uh, appreciate. But I think a lot of folks from our generation probably had somewhat similar experiences watching these films with their parents or grandparents and enjoying them together. And I think that's part of the reason he's having this renaissance uh, popularity now. Yes, he's been doing great work, you know, with the Martin Short shows and with with, uh, you know, the live shows and also Only Murder. But I think we're also just settling into this nationwide love fest with him where we are appreciating him, you know, before he's gone. We're kind of appreciating him the way we appreciate people who have passed away, but we're doing yeah, it now yeah. while he's here. And it just seems like there's nobody who isn't on board with that at this point. Exactly. I think there is something to that, you know, the movies that we grew up watching with our relatives and now we want to share them with our kids or nieces, nephews, whoever it is, kind of that nostalgia for time gone by, especially now when everything is so uncertain. Uh, We want to get that back. I have so many memories of watching Steve Martin as a little girl. I think my first movie that I distinctly remember him in was probably Planes, Trains, and Automobiles on television. And then My Blue Heaven was like a favorite in my family. We watched it all the time. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which we're going to talk about today. So I think, you know, I have all these great memories of exactly what you said, laughing with your relatives for these. And you do want to pass that on. I love the idea. It was really lovely of wanting to appreciate somebody before they're gone because, you know, he is such a beloved figure. And I think that is important. So that way, you know, you don't forget these people until they're gone. Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to, you know, appreciating him then the way we did now, I, I, we may talk about this more or we may not. I keep bringing it up for some reason, but I really do think his hair has a lot to do with it. (laughs) Because he's he's one of these guys who, you know, we say that he hasn't aged in 40 years. He has, obviously. Yeah. But there's some there's something about the premature gray and premature white that makes him feel constant. Like he has been there in this kind of same way. We haven't had to watch him age the way we have other people. And there's something comforting and familiar about that to watch these movies from back then and to see him on Twitter now and feel like he's kind of the same guy. It is. It kind of reminds me of like comedians that inspired him like Laurel and Hardy or these figures that kind of looked the same in their movies. Um, As you were saying, somebody who seems timeless or kind of a constant with his appearance reminded me of like uh, the Jacques Tati movies, the uncle character in all of those films that kind of you know bumbles through them and yeah or even even, or even Chaplin right I mean I think I think he owes a lot to Chaplin and a lot of those people you just mentioned they all they all do the same thing that is so hard to do which is to be stupid and smart at the same time to do this intelligent stupidity that Tati and Chaplin and Steve Martin all do and maybe the the constancy of their appearance has is some key part of that in some way. Yes. No, I agree with you. But going chronologically into the films today, I thought it might make the most sense to take our first two released just one week apart in December of 1986 together, featuring a heroic or accidentally heroic leading man performance and a villainous supporting turn from Steve Martin, respectively. While on the surface, director John Landis's Western comedy Three Amigos and Frank Oz's black comedy horror musical Little Shop of Horrors couldn't be more different taken together. The films really go a long way to showcase not only his evolving talent and tremendous range, but also what he is capable of. In the first set in 1916, Martin, along with co-stars Chevy Chase and Martin Short, play three silent film stars known as the Three Amigos, 
who are mistaken for real heroes by a desperate Mexican villager who hires the men to fight the tyrannical bandit El Guapo, played by Alfonso Arau, the actor who years later directed the gorgeous sensual romance like Water for Chocolate. Written by Saturday Night Live's Lauren Michaels, as well as Steve Martin and Randy Newman, who also wrote the songs for the film. It is a bright, funny send-up of a B-movie you might have seen decades earlier as a Saturday afternoon matinee. And that wild B-movie feel and experimentations with genre is precisely what Three Amigos has in common with our next 1986 film, Little Shop of Horrors. And that alone, essentially, with the exception of Steve Martin, of course. An adaptation of both director Roger Corman's 1960 movie, The Little Shop of Horrors, and the 1982 off-Broadway musical of the same name by composer Alan Menken and writer Howard Ashman, who wrote the film, Horrors centers on a meek floral shop worker, played by Rick Moranis, who discovers a rare Venus flytrap-style Chinese plant, that feeds on human blood, which not only helps save the Skid Row shop run by his boss, Vincent Gardenia, but helps Moranis get the sweet but dim co-worker of his dreams, Audrey, played by Ellen Green, as well. Part of their love triangle, however, is Steve Martin's sadistic, nitrous oxide-addicted dentist boyfriend, who's notoriously abusive and not willing to go down without a fight. A very weird, very bold performance by Martin, who looks like he's having a ball playing bad. The film further helped audiences realize that just as they'd found in his earlier movies like The Jerk, The Man with Two Brains, Dead Men, Don't Wear Plaid, and others, that when it comes to Steve Martin, it's best to expect the unexpected. But Noah, that's enough for me. So why don't you talk to me about Three Amigos and Little Shop of Horrors? Okay, I'm going to start with Little Shop because I don't have quite as much to say about it. I really yeah. just would, I would encourage folks to uh, seek it out. If you're not going to watch the whole movie, just look up the dentist song on YouTube yes. because I think <laughs> that's just like three and a half minutes of perfection from him, uh, especially the physical comedy associated mm-hmm. with it. His timing is just impeccable. He is so, he's so deliberate with his body. Um, and it's it's a huge part of his comedy, I think, but you really see it isolated in in that clip. And in the film in general, I think you're spot on that he really relished playing this awful human being because, you know, his films he made before that, um, Man with Two Brains, The Jerk, uh, Lonely Guy, those characters, like, they're not exactly good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. You don't really feel a lot for them, but... He was about to enter this period where he was playing much more likable characters, uh, starting with Three Amigos, I would say. And you, it almost feels like he was getting this out of his system. He wanted to play the worst person he could possibly play and have an incredible time doing it. And I think it's it's a testament to his likability that here is a guy who beats his girlfriend, yeah. abuses her yeah. emotionally. In the song, he talks about killing animals, the worst guy you could imagine, and yet there is still something likable <laughs> about him because it is Steve Martin and there is that innate likability in there. So it's a fascinating performance to watch. I think the whole film is, is actually great, but he, you know, it's kind of a glorified cameo, I guess. He has just a few scenes, but very much worth seeking out, in my opinion. It really is. And yeah, I mean, there's John Candy, there's Christopher Guest, there's a bunch of people doing little bits. Steve Martin has a little bit more of a substantial role than that, but still, it is such a great, uh, memorable performance. I'm not a huge, huge fan of the film. I enjoy it, but I especially love uh, his cameo. I think it's really cool because he is somebody like his father. I just read a Born Standing Up, which is a remarkable book. His father had wanted to become an actor and was kind of frustrated. They had a very difficult relationship uh, with withholding affection and uh, took several decades for them to kind of get on the same page for anyone listening who hasn't read the book. And so I know he wanted to be an actor and he kind of just accidentally got into magic and then comedy. At one point, he was even going to be a professor of philosophy because he said that was even kind of showbiz. And it really is. I mean, you are sort of putting on a show for your students. But in the 80s, when he got sick of doing comedy, 
he knew he wanted to do movies. And I think he really was tired of his own persona. That old line, like, you are the only person you can't get away from, essentially. And because I know on the road, kind of going day in and day out uh, on the comedy tour was getting to him. It was grueling. He said it was such autopilot. He just basically had to go through the choreography and deliver this, like, completely regimented thing that he had worked on. And, you know, it's hard for him to do that and be creative. And I think this opened up a lot of different avenues when he finally was able to play characters more. And I know this would take him outside of himself, which is exactly what it sounds like he really wanted. And so I love that about his performance. It's so bold. It's very daring. And I mean, he just looks, he is playing the bad guy, but he, and a sadist, but he just looks like he's having the time of his life. But he sort of plays him like he's a rock star, you know, yeah. there's some, there's some Elvis in there for sure. Like quite a bit of Elvis, Definitely. you know, and, and, you know, when I was growing up, I thought Steve Martin, this guy with white hair, he, he never seemed like um, a guy with that kind of, you know, charisma, but he really is like he, that photo of him that gets passed around on Twitter every now and then. I don't know if it's from a comedy album of him looking like Jim Morrison with the beard oh, and yes. the hair. I mean, he's a sexy dude in a lot of ways. Yeah. And his films are quite horny, I would say, also. And yeah. we could talk about that with some of the other films we're going to get into today. But, you know, this is, a, he is a rock star in so many ways. And mm -hmm. you know, he, he moved towards banjo, which isn't exactly rock and roll. But I feel like his kind of pure, raw charisma really comes out in Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, he is somebody who you wouldn't maybe associate on the surface with being sexual, but he really is. I remember when I first moved to Phoenix, it was around 2001. And that's when in Vegas, they had his big show of all of his artwork. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's a massive collector, like Picasso, just tons, Edward Hopper, lots of them. I went to Vegas to go see the, the show. And it was like, I'm being little exaggerating here, but I would say like 85% news. So, really? you know, there is something going on there with Steve. Uh, fans well, it's all, it's all over his films. I mean, I, really on, this, yeah. on this rewatch, I noticed it so much more than obviously than I did when I was a kid, but you know, even going back to the jerk and man with two brains, there's a lot of, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of raunchy stuff in those movies. And uh, I didn't necessarily associate that with them before I revisited these. Yeah, I think for me, it was reading Pure Dribble and then also reading Shop Girl that made me start looking at him in that light like, whoa, OK. And also it was, I think, good for him to kind of evaluate some of the relationships he had because he did talk about it in his book, like being in the 60s, free love. And, you know, he said something like sex back then or casual sex was like just saying hi. That's how casual it was. And he realized that maybe he was manipulative or maybe he used it as a transaction. And so when he got to um, the 90s and started to play with that a little bit in his writing and in his work, but also, as you pointed out, it is in these movies that came out earlier. I think it's interesting to show his progression and realization of all of that. Yeah. Well, we'll talk more about that, but I'll just say the first time I started to notice how sexual he was, was when my wife mentioned early on in our relationship that she thought he was hot. And that had like, that had really never even occurred to me. And it took a lot of years of like, just talking about Steve Martin with her as we do uh, for me to come around to it, but it's, it's a thing. And I don't think it is denied at this point. Yeah. There's a charisma there for sure. Yes. And uh, night and day performances going from little shop of horrors to three amigos do you remember seeing that like for the first yes. time? Yeah, that was definitely one of the ones I watched with my grandmother. And I, I would probably get even more specific and say the My Little Buttercup scene is the thing that first made us howl with laughter together. Oh, I love that. Uh, but, you know, this is interesting. This movie, obviously, what it, it, it this is a great example of just the wide variety of comic approaches he can bring to a film. He did co-write this movie, as you mentioned, and there yeah. is there's spoof, there's Hollywood satire, there's uh, absurdism, there's kind of SNL SNL style sketches within it. 
um, that come out of nowhere. And I think that is definitely part of the appeal. You know, I don't, John Landis was not involved in the edit so much of this because he was on trial, being being held accountable (laughs) for getting killed. Uh, But it does feel like maybe a firmer hand in the edit would have made it more comically consistent. But Mm -hmm. I like the way it works now, which is that you kind of never know where the next joke is coming from. And, but underneath it is such a solid story. And I think that's really what makes it work. Obviously, this story has been ripped off by so many other films from A Bug's Life to Galaxy Quest and Tropic Thunder. They basically all use the same core of a story, which is a bunch of entertainers get mistaken for the characters they play in some way, and they have to actually live up to the courage and heroism of those characters. And I just think that speaks to the the core idea, which was Steve Martin's uh, to begin with, and how strong that was and what a good sense of story he has. Yeah, you point out A Bug's Life, and this has nothing to do with Steve Martin, except you mentioned it. But it reminded me of in film school, we had this unit in foreign film class where you were supposed to find a movie that took a foreign film and did something completely different with it. And so for A Bug's Life, uh, it was being compared to Seven Samurai as, you know, having to take over and protect the the people. And so um, this is, you know, the showbiz version of it with Three Amigos. It is uh, very absurdist. There's pratfalls, too. There's all kinds of humor. You're not sure where the jokes are coming, exactly as you said, or the different styles that are woven throughout it. It kind of reminds me of a little bit of his comedy routine and some of his experimentations with uh, punchlines or lack thereof. He Mm. was famous for talking about how he preferred Laurel and Hardy because he said the three stooges were just too violent and Laurel and Hardy taught me that you can be tender, affectionate, and the biggest laughs come from poking fun at yourself. And then when he was um, kind of blending that with what he was learning in philosophy and psychology classes, in college, he was realizing that when people go to comedy shows, they're looking for the release. Like the tension is the setup of the joke and the punchline is the payoff. But if you just thunder right through and you don't give them that actual like applause line or the the expected thing, they're going to laugh whenever they want, or they're going to be uncomfortable or maybe laugh a couple lines too late. And so that became sort of his thing he would do, like inverting jokes. And I see that a lot in this movie. I mean, there are some definite gags where, you know, you're supposed to laugh or applaud right away, but there's also some of that real zaniness that also goes in the next film. We're going to talk about Roxanne as well. So I love what he's doing in this movie. It's supposed to be, uh, or supposed to have been, you mentioned SNL. It was going to co-star Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi originally. And of course, John Belushi passed away, unfortunately. And then it became Chevy Chase and Martin Short. Martin Short and Steve Martin had like, I guess, admired each other from afar. I think it was either John Candy or Dan Aykroyd. I can't remember who recommended Martin Short for this. I think it was John Candy because he had been in uh, Second City with him. And that's basically where they became friends, Martin Short and Steve Martin. And this is a friendship that is, you know, continued on with only murders in the building and their tour together. And yeah, uh, they tell a really funny story about the first time they met and how fast they connected. Uh, Martin Short went over to Steve's house to pick up a script. And when he was there, he was seeing all the art on the walls. And he said, wow, you're so rich. I just don't understand it because I've seen your work. (laughs) <laughs> and that was that was his opening. And then at the end, I think Steve Martin said, and then when we closed, I said something like, well, I was expecting more charisma or something like that. <laughs> I love that whole connection right from the start. I like that strategy. When you meet a new person, you make a provocative joke uh, and, <laughs> and you see how it lands. And if it lands, you've got a friend for life. And that's clearly yeah. uh, what happened there. You know, I love I love these two in this movie. Um, obviously, the My Little Buttercup scene is incredible. It um, is. You know, Chevy Chase feels like a little bit of an afterthought in this movie to me, to be honest Good with point. you. Uh, it really, the chemistry between them, and I think they both get, you know, the, the biggest laughs in the film. And, 
you know, I do see a little bit of Laurel and Hardy in this movie. You know, the scene with the three of them in the one bed together reminds yes. me of Laurel and Hardy. And there's something about the innocence of the characters as well, how mm-hmm. they, they all have like romantic uh, partners, sort of. Martin Short, we find out, has one at the end. But they don't seem at all like that interested in pursuing it. And the scene with Chevy Chase where the woman is coming on to him and he's completely oblivious to it. Yes, kiss me on the veranda. The lips are fine. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Did not get that joke when I was seven. I didn't know what a veranda was. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the innocence of those characters, I think, is very drawn from uh, the Laurel and Hardy, that era of comedy. Because as we talked about, not all of his films are that innocent uh, romantically, sexually. Uh, but it it really works, and I think that helps contribute to the timelessness and why I was quite comfortable watching this with my my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Hey. Well, next in what is an absolute passion project for Steve Martin, we find the actor and screenwriter adapting Edmund Rostand's play Cyrano de Bergerac for the screen in the 1987 romantic comedy Roxanne. Knowing that he both loved the film version featuring Jose Ferrer, as well as the play, but wanted to give its characters a happy ending, Martin wrote 25 drafts of the film over a three-year period to get the movie's sweet, but also wondrously strange tone just right. And the result is a sophisticated and still quite seductive comedy that remains one of his very best. Directed by Fred Scapizzi and co-starring Daryl Hannah, Shelley Duvall, and Rick Brasovich. In the film, Martin plays the Cyrano de Bergerac character as Charlie C.D. Bales, a small mountain town fire chief who is sharp-witted, athletic, charismatic, well-liked, and very sensitive about the fact that he was born with a very large nose, which he cannot have altered because he's allergic to anesthesia. Falling for a gorgeous, like-minded PhD astronomy student played by Hannah, Charlie is shy about making romantic overtures and soon finds himself in the unusual predicament of declaring his love to her in the guise of a handsome yet nervous and incredibly dim-witted new fireman she develops a crush on. Weaving in slapstick one-liners, poetic speeches, and more, it's the perfect vehicle for Martin as a leading man. And I would love to hear your thoughts on Roxanne. Well, I'd love to hear your thoughts too, because I think if memory serves, Cyrano is, is like an important text for you. You you like it yes. a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to hear your take on this one. So in the meantime, I'll just say, I think this, this sort of does introduce a new Steve Martin to us in a lot yeah. of ways the erudite Steve Martin that Mm -hmm. we probably didn't know was there underpinning all of the silly comedy all along. But, you know, this is, he's, he's operating off of a classical text here, creating something new of it. And he really sands off to me, a few of the styles of comedy that he was leaning on in previous films. There's not a lot of absurdism here a few Mm -hmm. touches here and there maybe and i think that gives him room to to really act you know to really create a character a believable human being uh in a a situation that we can relate to for maybe the first time in his film career and even even though even so it's still a familiar character for him in a lot of ways because if you look at dead men don't wear plaid and man with two brains these are films that are you know, toiling in genres of the past. And mm-hmm. Mar- Martin is playing these archetypical lovelorn heroes. And Roxanne is really like that in a lot of ways. I think he's just not leaning on genre or absurdism, and he's really allowing himself to be vulnerable. And there are gears here he definitely had never even reached for before when he is reading speaking the poetry in these scenes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really emotionally powerful stuff. And I don't think there was much in his filmography before this that really indicated that was something he would ever be good at or even try to be good at. Yeah, those romantic declarations just really hit you hard. The beginning of the movie is pretty absurdist. We see him like take his tennis racket and start battling. I think it's Kevin Nealon, if I remember right. That's right. And so it's a little ridiculous. And there are touches of that, some 
slapstick where he like, you know, jumps on a tree and climbs onto a roof and gets in there and does this gymnastic sort of routine. There are some crazy moments like Daryl Hannah running around naked because her robe got caught in the door and she has to go to the firehouse to get back in the house. I don't know why she didn't grab a rock and just, but we're not supposed to think about that. But, um, you know, there are those little flashes, but overall it's a very heartfelt, sincere movie about a man uh, falling in love and also trying to figure out his own self-worth and look, look in the mirror essentially and see what he really thinks of himself. And so, yeah, I think it does hit hard when I first saw it. It was before I'd had like a bunch of back surgeries and scoliosis and stuff like that. So when I first saw it, I maybe didn't get the disability angle quite as much as I did later on revisits. And as I did revisit it, I started to realize, oh, interesting, because I'm kind of one of those people who for a good period of time, especially in my younger life, would romantically, you know, keep people at an arm's length or push them away, kind of casually date. And then I was always the dumper or that kind of thing. Like I would preemptively, well, they're going to get tired of that, or they're not going to be able to, you know, deal with things. And so Cyrano had always really hit me pretty hard. I remember helping my English teacher actually teach uh, Cyrano to her students when I was a TA. Um, I started college kind of early and my high school was actually paying for it. And part of the deal was I came back and helped teach essentially. And so I basically did the unit on Cyrano when my teacher was like doing in-school training or something. And so this was always an important play for me. We watched Cyrano, um, you know, the, it was the Depardieu version maybe way back when, and then also Roxanne. I love the new version with Peter Dinklage. So shout out to anyone who hasn't seen it. Yes, it's so good. Uh, it doesn't have the happy ending, just spoiler alert that you might expect knowing with uh, Roxanne. But but yeah, it's it's an amazing text. I love Martin in Roxanne. Daryl Hannah is so great. I mean, just an ethereal beauty, one of my favorites from childhood. I remember like going to a friend's house and watching Splash all the time. So yeah, I think it's an a it- lovely film. An ethereal beauty, and also he made her smart, you know, and which is yeah, something she is a rocket is, scientist. I love that line. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. literally. Uh, and I think he he really pays attention to all the characters in this movie, except maybe with the exception of Shelley Duvall, who doesn't have very much. Uh, no, but she has some important moments, which I love. She does, but he, he re- you really get a sense that he loves the characters. Uh, you know, he cast these interesting actors, comedians, some of them to play the the fireman in his, in his firehouse. And I think Rick Rosovich is really, really good in this movie as well. But he also creates um, a sense of just community and place in this film. Yeah. This takes place in supposed to be a, a Northwestern ski town. I think it was actually shot in British Columbia. Yes. And, uh, you know, from the fireman who is too afraid to go into the bookstore to pick up his Sartre book to the mayor played by Fred Willard, who is always trying to get publicity for the town. I mean, there's just a lot, it's just a very rich portrayal of a community. And I think it makes it a better film. And it just stands out to me because it's so rare in comedies. Mm -hmm. Comedies at all are pretty rare these days, but you just don't see studio uh, comedies that really are interested in kind of filling out uh, behind the the main plot and the main characters yeah. with that, that kind of depth. And uh, I think a lot you, Steve Martin obviously deserves all the credit for that. And I think it was a super wise choice because he is obviously um, very memorable in this film and Daryl Hannah is very memorable, but what elevates it even beyond that is that everywhere you look and, and his camera looks a lot of different places, everywhere you look, there's somebody interesting and somebody likable and something uh, to capture your attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of local color. There's some hilarious people in bent parts. And what you were pointing out, usually in, especially today, studio comedies, they're so straightforward when we actually make comedies. It's basically the two main, if it's a romantic comedy, there's two main characters. They both have friends who are like way too horny and always encouraging them to hook up or something. 
and uh, maybe they have a parent or something, and that's about it. They might have a boss who shows up for a scene, but you know, you don't really get a sense of the community they live in. And this, I mean, even to the point of a scene where he goes into like a drugstore and looks at shading for a cosmetic, you can tell the tenderness, which the uh, cashier or the um, employee tries to assist him, but does so gently, you know, not letting him know that she knows he's the one that needs the cosmetic. And I just, I love the care that's taken with everyone. The little, uh, you know, usually you would have romantic rivals or something be very dim. And you actually do care about the Rick Rosevich character. I mean, you know, he's he's kind of a big kid and he's very, um, you know, uncomfortable in his own skin, which I think is a nice uh, link to why he would probably be friends with Cyrano. Or, or Charlie in this version. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of depth going on in Roxanne that you might not get the first time you watch it, but with repeat viewings, you will. Yeah, I mean, we talk about modern day studio comedies and the ones I always think about from the last few years, because there are so few, I think about uh, Game Night and Love it. <laughs> uh, Good Boys. And I think about The House a lot too with Will Ferrell, because that's one of my uh, favorites. But the thing those movies all have in common is they all take place in these sort of nondescript suburbs, right? Yeah. Like there's no there's no character to those communities at all. And with this, you get a real sense of place and you get a real sense of community. And I, I guess part of that is probably coming from the original text because the way Cyrano interacts with the town is is part of that. But I think the way Steve Martin writes it it's more than just a community. It's like these people are all going through the same things. They all want love. They're all horny. Like they, mm-hmm. they there's a, there's a thematic consistency with all the characters. It is really, I think, uh, underappreciated and contributes to the film's success. It really does. And this was the same year that planes, trains and automobiles came out where he played, you know, a total jerk who, you know, lives in the Chicago suburbs and has to kind of learn to look past his own prejudices and become friends with John Candy. But this shows a vulnerability. So it it is between those two films alone, just showing the range that Steve Martin has, and he was getting better and better. The only reason I didn't include Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in this uh, episode, even though it came out during the same time period, is it just, it doesn't feel like a Steve Martin movie. That's John Hughes more. It's John Hughes and even John John Candy a little more than Steve Martin. I think Steve Martin is incredible in it, but his performance is a little more um, obsessive, obsessive, Mm -hmm. you know, than uh, John Candy's. But you could probably do a whole episode on that uh, on that movie. And maybe we will one day. I actually did an episode a couple months ago because it came out on a new Blu-ray release from Paramount and I covered it just solo. So I talked about it briefly, but. Yeah, I love it. I'm sure we're going to revisit it at a later date because uh, probably a few times because it is so beloved. But I think this was a really good selection for Steve Martin. So lastly, we go from sweet to sour, but still very, very funny in director Frank Oz's Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, released in 1988 in this remake of the 1964 film Bedtime Story, starring Marlon Brando and David Niven. Steve Martin and Michael Caine play two conniving con men, one British and suave and one brash and American who compete to swindle Glenn Headley's heiress out of $50,000 on the French Riviera. Written by Dale Lawner, Dan Lee Shapiro and Paul Henning and later remade as The Hustle in addition to inspiring several other conman caper movies and TV shows. This is an intriguing showcase for Martin because he gets to try on a variety of personas in one movie. So what is your take on Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Well, I have not seen Bedtime Story. I haven't have either. Not, and I have not seen The Hustle, which We're is in the, the same boat. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, the re- and I'll tell you, the reason I haven't seen those is because this is just perfect and i don't i don't want it sullied by what came before <laughs> or what came after um i don't even quite know where to begin there's a few different things i'd like to talk about with this sure. movie but i will say one thing that really really makes it work is the casting not just of steve martin but yes of Michael Caine. and i'm sure you saw in your research like 
It was not written for them. It was written for David Bowie and Mick Jagger originally, yeah. which is, you know, you can obviously see who would play which role there. Uh, thankfully, that didn't work out. And as I understand it, Steve Martin was originally slated to play Lawrence Jameson, the Michael Caine part. But some mix up when Richard Dreyfus came into screen test where he thought he was and Steve Martin had to end up reading Freddie Benson. And I think they liked him so much as that role, they ended up switching the whole thing around. And I think it's perfect because when you look at Steve Martin and Michael Caine together in these roles, you can see in them the other one. And you really can. That's a great point, Noah. You can see Steve Martin as the erudite, classy mm-hmm. one, because we know that he is that in yes. real life. And we know Michael Caine started out playing characters oh, like guys. Alfie, you know, yeah. like working class London guys. So I think that really builds a chemistry and connection between the two of them, where you get a sense that these two people understand each other and like each other and respect each other, even as they are trying to destroy each other at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's a really good point. I think their chemistry is so good because they are just tapping into different sides of themselves and each other. I love their meeting on the train. And I think it's really fun to see the evolution of, you know, like cats and dogs fighting to, you know, an uneasy alliance and then testing each other and the one upmanship. I remember as a kid watching this and just loving the way it worked, kind of like almost like clockwork. It just all fell into place. It was so good. I also am a huge fan of Glenn Headley. Steve Martin would work with her again and Sergeant Bilko, thank goodness, because she's got marvelous comedic timing. She's also good in drama. I loved her in Mr. Holland's Opus as a kid as well. But she is really good here because she's playing, you know, several different sides, like this naive heiress, then we find out more about her, then we're not sure. And there's a lot of twists at the end. I think it's really good. It also shows that Frank Oz, as a director, was able to tap into a side of Steve Martin that other filmmakers weren't. When you take this one in quick succession with Little Shop of Horrors, you're like, he's playing a darker side of Steve Martin, or he's tapping into that and giving him space to do that um, in fiction and in acting. And I think it's it's really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah, and of course they worked together again a couple times on House Sitter and uh, uh, Bowfinger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Glenn I Headley love is Bowfinger. It's one of my yeah, faves. I do too. I, do too. Um, I actually, I'll I'll go to bat for House Sitter as well. I enjoy it too. Yeah, it's really good. And I think Glenn Headley is amazing. Also, you know, the I did look up the synopsis of Bedtime Story, and it has a completely different ending. Does it uh, really? Yeah, Freddie and Janet just end up getting married and moving back to America together. And Lawrence, yeah, and Lawrence Jameson just continues doing what he does. This is so much better. I mean, it's so much richer that she has been playing them the whole time. They are so overconfident and arrogant in their understanding of women. And meanwhile, Mm -hmm. she, she understands men and what men think of women so much better than they could possibly imagine. It uses her voice so perfectly that she is playing this. um, They see her as this uh, innocent, uh, naive uh, woman, uh, the child almost who needs to be uh, taken care of. And then she uses her voice so brilliantly in the last 30 seconds. I think she uses three different voices, which she does. The last one. Yeah. Yeah, Pacing all of that. we, We see her real voice in her character's real voice in, in the very last line of the movie. It's an incredible performance that dovetails perfectly with the new conception of the character that, that the writers put together. Yeah. And I think a lot of these movies he was involved in did have very strong female characters. I mean, this one, it might not seem that way on the surface, uh, at least initially. But yeah, it was. it's really cool to see that dynamic. You mentioned House Sitter. It's another one where the woman, you know, who's playing who... And this seemed to be a recurring thing in his movies, uh, especially there for a little while. And I just, yeah, I really enjoy this one. Of course, whenever you bring this movie up, they're going to bring up uh, Ruprecht, the character that he plays. So again, he's playing like characters within characters 
just, you know, it's bringing back his background doing Saturday Night Live and skits. And it's it's classic Steve Martin. So there is that weirdness, that zaniness that sort of pops right in there. And yeah, it's just so yeah, much but fun. He's, I mean, he's a consistent character outside of that and a yep. believable character. And uh, the other thing that popped to me when I rewatched this last night is really just the craft that was involved in making this movie. You know, these studio comedies of the late 80s and early 90s, they had just incredible cinematographers and isn't it gorgeous uh, oh my god so good and this was the cinematographer is michael bauhaus who did so many scorsese movies came up with fast finder did broadcast news working girl i mean he was just he was just a pro at like every kind of movie and i think i noticed it actually in the very beginning the first couple scenes when we are sort of in lawrence jameson's lie about himself that he Mm -hmm. is this uh Royalty. You know, royalty, exactly, uh, who's fighting the communists. Uh, Bauhaus's cinematography really sells that. And you, yeah. you kind of sense the tension and the foreign intrigue in the way that those shots are put together. And I looked up last night, the production designer, this guy, Roy Walker, has an incredible resume. He worked on Dr. Zhivago, A Man for All Seasons, Barry Lyndon, The Shining. Holy cow. Gentle, uh, eyes wide shut, talented Mr. Ripley. He was he was the PD on all those movies, and I think the a lot of commonality in some of those movies is a lot of those movies are about extremely wealthy people, and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, of course, is in that world as well. And I think he must just be some kind of uh, genius at depicting the world of wealth on screen in a way that is both believable and sort of um, immersive. Because I think Dirty Rotten Scoundrels it's such a a joy to look at. I mean, it's I call this kind of movie like a vacation movie where you it feel is. like on vacation when you're watching it. And it's, it's, it's a better vacation than I would ever be able to take. Yeah. It's effervescent, fizzy, sunny, sophisticated. It kind of feels and looks like a French movie or a French comedy, you know, watching it. I was thinking of like some Francis Weber films. Uh, the ballet is one of my faves, you know, some of these just gorgeous movies. It, it, basically you're taking a trip to France. Definitely. And, and the score, I think, by Miles Goodman really adds to that. It's so jaunty and jazzy and it just feels like I can't I don't think I could picture the Riviera without thinking about that score or the feel of that score. No. And the costuming is so good. Yeah, it's just a beautiful film. Frank Oz puts together a tremendous team. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and to watch the the comedy pop from that world, you know, uh, we just, we just don't see that very often or less and less as time goes by to see that yeah. kind of a world, a world of old school charm and class and to mm-hmm. see this kind of very silly comedy come out of it. I, we, we may never see it again in, in film. Yeah, it's definitely too bad, but I know that was all the ones that we had time to focus on for today. But before I let you go, I would love to know what some of your other favorite or worthwhile Steve Martin movies or projects you'd encourage those listening to check out, whether it is from the 80s era or not. Well, we mentioned House Sitter, which I am a big fan of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really I really like uh, him and Goldie Hawn together in that film. I think they have great chemistry. Yeah. And I like the supporting cast a lot, too. I think Donald Moffat as his father. Is, Dana is Delaney. Dana Delaney, terrific. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a huge Parenthood fan as well. That movie gets better. Uh, yeah, I watch it every five years, and it's like a different movie to me, sort of. I've been meaning to revisit it. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, It's really good. And, you know, I don't... I'm not a giant fan of when Steve Martin does straight drama. I mean, okay. he's, he's done yeah. it a lot of times and I pennies from heaven is the only one that I really, really like. And I would encourage people to check that out. But I think parenthood is great because it has a lot of dramatic moments in it, but it gives him a lot of comedic moments as well. I mean, he makes balloon animals in that movie and dresses up like a cowboy for a kid's birthday party, but there's also actually a lot of serious stuff that I think resonates with adults trying to balance, you know, do with the work-life balance and all that. So I think that's one of Ron Howard's best movies and he is just excellent, excellent in it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would say also The Spanish Prisoner is one of my favorites, uh, the David Mamet movie. 
and Bowfinger, as we pointed out. I mean, you're not going to get a better Hollywood satire. Okay, the player, of course, but <laughs> Hollywood satire as they go. I mean, Bowfinger is just wonderfully funny and also just extremely uh, deft and clued into Tinseltown for sure. Yeah, absolutely. He's always, I mean, Three Amigos is a showbiz satire in a lot yeah. of ways too. So he's always had his eye on that, I think, and he's great at it. Yeah, and I love his comedy. If you're listening and you're unfamiliar, YouTube, you can find the Wild and Crazy Guy stand-up special and you really should seek it out. Also, The Absent-Minded Waiter is very, very funny. It's a short and will make you just die laughing. So, And I'll say one more thing. Uh, I really, I like his books a lot. Uh, in yeah. fact, my favorite book of his is one that people don't talk about very much, which is called The Pleasure of My Company. It was That was second. very good. I, I actually think that's his best prose. So people might not have heard of it. I encourage them to check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Noah, this was such a pleasure. I want to thank you so much for doing this. It was my pleasure too. I've never gotten to write about Steve Martin or talk about him in public before. So this was a long time coming for me. What are you doing? Editors, give them a call. So yes, thank you so much. From your lips. Yes. <laughs> I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.